All right, welcome to another VRL USA podcast. This is Alan, and I'm joined by Zach, and we're hoping that Sid will be able to come in later um, when he's available. But we're going to um, talk about all of these signings that we've uh, made or are about to make, and it's been a busy couple of weeks at uh, – at uh, the head offices of Virial, and and so we're hoping we can make some sense of it. Um, so Zach is joining us from Eastern North Carolina, where he's been busy um, helping clean up after a tornado there last week. So welcome, Zach. Thank you very much, and I plan on blaming anything that sounds insane that I say tonight on the fact that I'm exhausted from doing tornado cleanup. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, 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 and then coming here. So, um, but we are going to talk about, you know, so in the last 10 days, really, we've had, I always feel like there's sort of a, 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 there's sort of a cycle of transfer windows where you always get the, rumors of so-and-so that's coming and it just lacks a few details and then the details never happen or or you get interest that just saw that with guys like oscar with campana um with um campania with um and with zombo where we wanted to sign him but then fulham kept winning and eventually got promoted to the premier league so we didn't have a whole lot of leverage left but we've made three signings or have three upcoming signings that I don't think anybody could have figured we would have had at the start of the summer. So let's start with Kubo and, uh, and what he brings to the table. And what do you feel about it, given that it's sort of a – I mean, it is a one-year deal. No buyback, no purchase option, no anything. It's basically rent-a-play. How do you feel about that? So, based on the way he plays and based on – you know, we, we, can under, we can appreciate that, you know, some of his numbers may have been a little bit muted last year because Mallorca – uh, just lack talent in so many different areas, right? So maybe he ends up being a, a, a much better player and a, with a better supporting cast around him. But based on how he plays, if Chiquese still going to be in the roster when we start playing games next month, I don't understand why we did it because he seems to bring most of the same stylistic elements to the table that Chiquese does. So it, it, when we first announced the deal, it, it almost announced to me that we were interested in moving to Quasi, and I've been kind of surprised that we haven't seen any solid links since then with Chiquese being sold. Yeah. I I I thought that went that hit that, that might be the first would be Samu going somewhere, but the only real rumor we've seen was going to Napoli, and that one didn't really make a whole lot of sense when we, you know, when we started to look at it. I guess the other issue is that it just seems odd to me that if you're bringing in a player to replace a player you have, well, if the player you're bringing in is only yours for a year, you're not really 
replacing that guy. So it's, it's, it, you know, the other side of that is if you're trying to force, if, or if, if you're expecting Trequese to leave, well, Kubo is somebody who Real Madrid are not going to, they're not going to say at the end of the year, oh, you want to buy him? Sure, let's talk, you know, let's talk a reasonable price. I mean, whatever we got for Chiquese, they would charge that for Kubo and more. Yeah, I agree with you. And um, and so it could be a situation where, uh, you know, since we're back in European competition, financial fair play rules apply to us. So how we space out our purchases uh, in a three-year rolling window matter. Um, mm-hmm. Now, some of those rules are going to get thrown out the window because of the coronavirus and how that impacted clubs financially. Um, but it, it could be a situation where you're selling Samu now so that you can invest more heavily next summer than you would have been able to otherwise, um, and you're just you're just basically bringing in Kubo as a placeholder to get kind of that same on-field value. Um, while getting all the finances in the right order to make UEFA happy. Um, and if that's the case, that implies a much more serious level of ambition than I think we've ever really seen from Villarreal. Uh, but that, that's the only, it's really the only sense I can make of the deal. Yeah. I think the only other thing I could say about it is that Chukwueze is definitely more. Has, it, it, he's basically going to play on the right wing somewhere. Um, you would. He's not as. So I think that's one. That's one thing you could say is that maybe Kubo gives you a little more versatility in terms of where he can play. But it seems like a lot of. You're paying a lot of salary in a large to a guy who, on the surface of it, doesn't have an obvious place where you're just going to put him and say, "Okay, great, you know, he fits into my team right here." So, yeah, I just I keep scratching my head about this one um, because it doesn't doesn't really make a ton of sense if he's going to. Back to Real Madrid after a year, and I and I don't like the idea of us developing for them. I have to. Tell you. Um, the the other thing I would note, I mean, I, I know that in theory, because I've heard a lot of people talking about um, Kubo playing in the middle, and and just looking at his minutes from last season, um, he spent like less than four hundred of his minutes anywhere but the right wing. Um, so on the right side of the pitch, I mean, so, um, you know, I, I think there's this theory that Kubo could step inside and play in the middle, but as slight a frame as he is, and the fact that, it, I mean, Mallorca did not seem interested in using him there. Um, so I, I don't even know that he, now, he is a, a huge, massive deal in Japan, and Japan is, is crazy about football right now. And he is a huge star, so having him in our shirt means that for a lot of Japanese folks turning into, tuning into La Liga, we're the team they're going to be watching. But again, that would kind of signal to me a 
shift in in the thinking of the club because while Villarreal has done things like build international academies around the world, they haven't really seemed to be real hung up on like furthering their brand on you know to like an international stage. So I, I don't know. Right, and I think the only I think the only time we really tried that was when we did the um, X Step um, shirt deal, and of course we were relegated the following season, so it sort of fell apart. But you know, there, there was a brief um, attempt to you know get all sorts of Chinese social followers of the team, and that pretty much died off when we got relegated, but. As somebody told me, he said, well, you know, what, what we discovered was that the Chinese were happy to follow you on Weibo, but when it came to playing shirts, they still wanted Real Madrid and Barcelona. So right. it didn't really, you know, it didn't really pay off. Now, I don't know if, you know, I have a hard time understanding why somebody in Japan would, would, um, buy a Villarreal shirt if Kubo is going to go back to Real Madrid after a year. I don't know. It it does seem an odd one to me, and I think the, I mean, when we saw the list of teams that were interested in in taking Kubo on loan, it certainly made sense that he would choose Villarreal. What didn't make as much sense to me was where we would play him, but Emery evidently wanted him, and so if in fact um, we are not moving um, Samu this summer. I mean, where are we all these midfielders up? Yeah, well, to me, I think I mentioned this in an article, you, you bring in Kubo and you don't sell Samu, and that sends the message to me that you don't intend on playing Gerard on the right. And if you don't intend on playing Gerard on the right, and we know Emory has a history of single striker formations, well, now you've got a club record signing in Paco, who's probably not a starter, uh, to go along with the guy who I still haven't seen strong wings with him leaving Baca as like our highest paid player, who's not going to get a whole lot of minutes. So you've got a lot of resources tied up then in the striker position in a way that isn't really paying off much on the field. So, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Is there any possibility that Emery confounds us all and goes to a two-striker system or something? I I – I don't, I don't know, I don't get it either. I mean, it, it does seem, to me, having Paco as your single striker and having Gerard as your, as your second striker somewhere is great. But you're right, he, t- he tends to be played on the right and tends to be more effective there. Um, so unless, it feels like we've created a log jam on that right side. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and if Emory goes to a two-striker formation, then he's got two wide players that aren't re- that aren't really going to help defensively. So it's the it's the same issue that we ran into with the four, with the four four two last year, which was uh, very often your your right side midfielder is going to end up way forward, and you've got Pena or Gaspar stuck there trying to, you know, get, getting an overload on their side, trying to handle something they're not really equipped to handle. So I, I don't really I don't really see that two-striker formation being a possibility. Well, it, it seems to me the most sense is probably 
I mean, I think Baca is probably going to be moved um, unless he agrees to rework his contract for, you know, a, a big salary reduction or, you know, give, it, give him another, I don't know, give him another year on his contract but cut his salary or something. I suppose you could do something like that. But, yeah, it just seems to me that Paco is your obvious target guy up front. So I'm not... I'm not sure where all this where all this leads, except that we keep coming back to the idea that that uh, we keep wondering if Samu is in fact going to be leaving. Um, I mean that's that's the simplest explanation I can find for for bringing in Kubo. Yeah, I I agree with you, but the the gap between these two seasons is so small that I mean in a month they're talking about playing games again. Mm-hmm. So, so like, you know, it feels to me like there's a lot that needs to happen in a month. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I it's it, it's an odd one. I'm not. I'm. I don't get me wrong. I think Kubo is a great player, but I really wonder how he fits. I, I think that's the thing that I that I keep questioning about that is. Is how exactly does he fit? So let's talk about the other two, um, I guess, signings that are supposed to be presented later this week, um, which are Coquelin and Parejo coming from Valencia. And skipping aside all the uh, Valencia fans um, having conniptions because of the price that they're being sold for and everything, I mean, how do you – this deal makes a lot more sense in terms of what we need to fix, doesn't it? Yeah, because um, last year when we had when, – when Abora couldn't play, we had no one who could stay at home in the defensive midfield role and take care of the ball. And, and so Coakland, I think, provides – the kind of depth to say, okay, you know, he can, uh, he and he dribbles a little more than Amora, but they, they provide very similar things in terms of ball retention and in terms of where they like to stay on the pitch. So there's that depth issue solved there. Uh, and then Parejo, uh, while he's not as dynamic as uh, Angisa would have been if we'd been able to get that deal through, um, he th- there's really nothing in midfield that he doesn't do pretty well. Um, he, he's just such he's such a good all rounder, and if you're talking about those uh, classic Unai Emery double pivots, you know he's the perfect guy to uh, sit next to a straight man defensive midfielder and let him roam in that open space between the defensive midfielder and the attacking midfielder, uh, breaking lines and causing havoc. So, from a tactical standpoint, I think it would be especially for the amount of money they're talking about. I think it would be a great, great move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got, and I, I, I don't think you can discount the fact that you've got two players who, who know each other well. They, they've played, they've played, um, well together. And so, um, that's, uh, so I think that's an important, an important thing too. So, so if, if you're talking about a 4-2-3-1, then you're seeing, you're seeing like Ibora, Coquelin, and and Parejo in that in as sharing those two positions. That that's how I see it. Coquelin's not good enough 
to be a full-time starter in La Liga. But he is good enough. And, and I know when I, when I talk about him to my uh, Premier League fan friends, they're, they're horrified because they remember when, when, remember him when he was at Arsenal. Uh, and trying to play an Arsene Wenger system with how complicated and possession-oriented it was, um, he was completely, completely lost. But he's been a he's been a serviceable defensive midfielder for Valencia the last couple of seasons. Um, mm-hmm. and, but he's just not a guy that's going to play twenty five hundred minutes on a team that you know challenges for the top four or five in La Liga. But he doesn't have to be to be a very useful player, especially at the price number they're talking. Right. So. So the. Sorry, I'm recording this outside, and there's something large going by. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, those two, I think that makes sense, and I think you can hardly, at, at the price, you can't really quibble. Now, again, you've got some issues here of um, salary cap, I guess, but we lost... We lost the salaries of Bruno and of, um, of Santi. So we've got some, we've got some room there. This is why I keep thinking Baca is going to move though, is because, because of that. Um, yeah. I mean, any way we can clear off that salary would be great. Yeah. So the real question then, I just keep coming back to that in the four, two, three, one, it's the three, isn't it? It's what, what do we do with the, we have two players who could play as the one, um, and we and I think both of them have to feel like they're going to start somewhere. Um, Gerard, be, then that puts Gerard somewhere. He's been most effective on the right, uh, but I suppose try somewhere else. But we have players like Trigero, like uh, Manu Trigueros. We've got players like. Um, your favorite Antiveros, we've got Moy Gomez, then we've got Kubo and, and Samu. I mean, it, I understand we're playing three competitions. I, I understand the need for a lot of depth this season because I think we could well, I mean, nobody knows. We could well have a COVID interruption. We could well have, you know, we could have all sorts of things. But it just seems like a real logjam, doesn't it? It does. Um, and, and by the way, I, I'm a big, big, big Monty Trigueros fan. I think he is, he's been patient, you know, letting Santi get the spotlight. But we, we gotta remember that the two years before Santi got here, Trigueros was an everyday starter on the fifth best team in La Liga both seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think him in that 10 role, uh, would play to his strengths perfectly, uh, right there in the middle being, being the creator for the, the wings around him. Um, I don't think Antaveras is ready to start yet. I think you end up starting Boyd Gomez over there because he's a he's a solid, reliable presence. Um, and then you know, I, like like you said, I think the interesting thing becomes um, what happens what happens with that right wing because I just. You know, I think one of two things is going to happen. I think if we don't end up selling Samu, then he ends up in a rotation there with with with, with Kubo. And if that ends up being the case, then I think what you might end up seeing is 
Unai at least trying shifting Gerard down into that 10 role, that mm-hmm. sort of classic Amber Benega role, um, and seeing if he can pull it off. And I don't know whether he can or whether he can't. Um, I know he's a, he's a good enough forward that he has to be on the pitch. Uh, but it, you could see, um, oddly enough, if it works out, Trigueros being the odd man out and, and, and Trigueros creating a new log jam in those two, in that double pivot, while Gerard ends up being the go-to guy in the central attacking mid Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I think um, one of my, I mean, I am a huge Manu Trigueros fan as well, and I think partly because I remember how he, he was one of the, he's always been a sort of an unsung guy who has done everything you've asked of him. I mean, and he was part of the team that, you know, got promotion in, um, in 2012-13. As you say, he's done pretty much everything you've asked. He's played various places on the pitch. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, he has had some physical issues. I mean, um, year before yeah. life, especially. So uh, I think it's it's always a tough one because you want to have enough ability to rotate and and particularly with the five substitutes, which we are, right? Is that decided for sure? That's my understanding of it. I, I, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding of it as of now. I know the EPL talked about it decided not to do it. Right now. Yeah, that they, if we have five subs, then then it's you. It's obviously a little easier to, to um, move people around. What I remember about Emery also from his years with Valencia and, and Sevilla, especially you know, as compared to um, what we've been used to the last couple of years, where essentially. Um, you start a, you, you pick an 11 on who you think played well last game or who you think is hot or you just decide these are the best 11 players I have and I'm going to put them out there. I mean, Emery is a tinkerer. He, he, yeah. is, he is going to be the kind of guy who is going to say, oh, wait a minute, we're playing this team, so I need to approach this game this way and I want these players to start, you know. So I think, I think there's going to be a lot of that. So maybe when we're, to the idea that you know us are going to get to start every game, um, it's just it, it's just not going to happen. So um, that's that's the that's the thing that might that might occur. So let's take a break because I'm going to try to add in. Sid, if he's here, and he should be about now. He's sure. Hey, Zach. Hey, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm hanging in there. All right, Zach's on a pair of uh, surplus ear uh, headset today, so he's there's a little bit more noise than usual. So, okay, uh, I'm going to start up again. All right, so Sid, welcome. Um, you've joined us now, and we were talking earlier about the signing of Kubo and what 
that seemed to mean or didn't mean for our depth chart because it seems like we've created a log jam that we didn't really need to create. But how do you feel about this signing a player for a year for Real Madrid to develop? I mean, I just, it, I just don't like it. What, what? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's a different philosophy. Uh, I think one thing that's notable is it seemed to work last year for Sevilla uh, with Reguilon, um, mm-hmm. who played pretty extensively for them. Um, you know, I think sort of the difference as to how we feel about this is we're saying this doesn't appear to be like the position of greatest need, um, you know, not not saying a player like this would come over, but if there were a, you know, second coming of Casemiro who were in the Madrid system and he came over, I think we'd all say that makes a lot of sense because we don't have that type of player internally. Yeah. Um, so I think I think one question to be asked for sure that we won't know the answer is – you know, is an exit more imminent than we might have thought? Um, I think the most, uh, you know, logical would be of Samu, of course. Um, but even somebody like Ontiveros, if there was some assessment made that, hey, you know, he'd benefit from a year on loan or mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody is willing to pay for obviously what the talent was there. Um, so that'll be something to watch out for. Uh, but if it is just sort of, you know, squad depth and, you know, I think, I think we could say he certainly, Kubo from the performances that we saw, um, seemed to be generally more consistent, um, than players like Samu or Antiveros. So, you know, I'd imagine he slots into the starting 11. Uh, then you have to go back to, as you were saying, Alan, the kind of, well, do we really want to be, developing players for Real Madrid. Um, and and that's a tough one. You know, I, I think one of the things you, you confront in this discussion is, you know, the nature of acquiring players not to actually play them, um, but to have them as assets. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost like, you know, some of these players uh, – are being acquired not to play for Real Madrid. Now again, I don't know that that is really the case with Kubo. Uh, I would I would think he factors in to longer term plans, but you just don't know, right? Um, and and maybe the idea is okay. He goes, sort of learns the league a little bit, and then he goes to VRL, does really well. All of a sudden, we get this you know monster offer from. Let's say Inter Milan might be a team again that would be you know a logical fit for somebody like that, and they just say, hey, you know his market value will pay you fifty million for him, and it just becomes purely a business move that they mm-hmm. went and developed this player. Because mm-hmm. um, again, and right, if you're Madrid, you also have Odegaard, uh, who at some point should return as well. And I think everybody would say he's the more polished player at this point in time. So, right, right. 
Yeah, it, it's it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, Zach was saying earlier that you know what it's really bizarre because the the off season is so short, and we've got you know with, with the financial fair play three year window or whatever. You know, who knows? I mean, maybe you are kind of looking at this as right now we are holding both of them and then maybe we sell Samu, you know, next year. Who knows? It's just it it just seems like on the face of it, as you said, we're in, we're improving a position that wasn't that of greatest need. Yeah, and, uh, but then, you know, I suppose you have to have, look at it and say for this kind of money. How else would you get an impact player like that? Right. Um, That's the flip flip side. And we've certainly seen, I mean, we had to a a lesser degree, but we had success with somebody like Dennis Suarez, who admittedly it wasn't quite the same because there was a purchase option, but a buyback. So we, but effectively we did the same thing. We, we had him on loan for, you know, a couple of years. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts about, I mean, Man City has certainly been the, been the, the great at developing this sort of players as assets to be loaned out and eventually developed and sold. I mean, do you have any thoughts on it from the Madrid perspective? Well, I just, I think part of the Madrid perspective that uh, is relevant to me real is the fact that it seemed like Madrid gave him to a newly promoted club last year, and he did pretty well. And they clearly wanted to up the ante. Like they clearly wanted him to get some experience in European competition. Um, so, what we were what, from a Villarreal perspective, one of the things that may have been looked at is that saying, "Okay, well, if they don't loan him to us, they may end up loaning him to Sevilla." Yeah, and Sevilla is somebody that if if we're bringing in Emery and we think Emery is going to push for that fourth slot, right? Because the top three are basically on lockdown every year. If we're going to push for that fourth slot, Sevilla is someone we're going head to head with for that fourth position. So is there a is there a situation where as Madrid tries to develop these players, and, and one of the things Madrid does is. They do tend to try to graduate guys to higher and higher levels of loans. I mean, Odegaard's a good example of that. So if they're saying he's going to be in a Europa League team in La Liga, then it better be us and not Sevilla because we don't want, you know, we don't want a, a direct rival getting a player that can be the difference between them or us getting a position in the table later on down the stretch. Yeah, that, that's that's true too. I I um. Yeah, I still feel, I mean, Emery clearly wanted him, so he's got a plan somewhere. I'm just not sure what it is. I think that's, I think that's pretty much where, where we all are with it. But I think the other question that, and this is something that goes back to something Sid said to me about the Emery hire, which I think is, is, um, relevant too, is, you know, are we seeing a changing of the guard at Villarreal in terms of, the front office and how things are operating. And, and Sid, I'm going to have you um, expound on that a little bit because you, you were talking to me about that and the fact that, you know, we, Senior Raj and Senior Craneza are pretty much stepping back these days. Yeah. And, and I think it, 
I think Zach's point is spot on, and we see this all the time, right, when there's more than a three-week transfer window of saying Sevilla, Valencia, and Villarreal are all interested in X. Yep. Um, and, and so I think, um, I, I think Zach is spot on in saying that Madrid's conditions here were loaning him up the table to a team in Spain. And then at some point, there are only so many options. And if he is a player that Emery says, I'd like to have him, that also means I don't want my direct rivals to have him. Uh, So so there's some sense there. But yeah, I think in going to what you you were alluding to, Alan, you know, I, I do think that the sort of younger generation of VRL um, in terms of management, you know, I think this is one of those things I feel like Senoroid at some point must have uh, gotten on his soapbox and said teams in the league need to stop doing this because it's not good for the health of the league uh, to be, you know, developing players for the top two teams and not having any ability to to buy them Um and then loan them back to to have them play against you the next year. Um, mm-hmm. But from a more pragmatic point of view, it's the again can't sort of you can't beat that Sevilla and Valencia are doing this. Then join them, you know, when there's there's an opportunity you feel like you you can't turn down. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so so it will be interesting to see as it continues to play out a little bit. Um, but I think we were talking in the context that you were referencing just about how it seemed like firing Kaiha was a little bit ruthless um, mm-hmm. in a way that we sort of in the family owned club spirit don't feel like VRL has been sort of relentlessly. We're going to do something that's better, even in spite of the fact that op, it seems like I didn't get a fair shake at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about it, and I think I go back to the signing of Paco, which was, which was in many ways a kind of similar to Kubo, except it was a signing rather than a loan. Where you know we go out and make our record signing be a player who was not, it was not a position of greatest need. But I think at the time, our feeling was that, you know, the justification for it was really more in terms of looking at the player as an asset, which is a more modern approach to it that is being used by more and more teams. It's not historically how Virial has looked at it. But I, but I think, again, it was like, well, we have the opportunity to add this guy at a what we consider to be a bargain price. So we're going to go ahead and do it. And that is a little different mentality, and it strikes me as more of the mentality of the younger generation in the Virial head office than Senor Roig or certainly Senor Craneza. I, I, who, and I think these guys, I think certainly Senor Craneza is pretty much retired, but Senor Roig is really stepping back a lot from. Um, so to to that end, in terms of like a change of mentality, something I wanted to ask both of y'all. Um, because we, we, we talk about this double deal that we're talking about doing with Valencia to get Coquelin and Parejo, and we're talking about Jami Costa coming back to at left back, 
And if you look at those three moves and you look at them in combination with who we already have on the roster, when you think of guys like Albiol and Asensio and Ibora, um, you know, does the age of the squad concern you? Because it seems like what we're built for so far is, you know, especially when the center backs we've been linked with are Shilvas and uh, bringing back Gabriel, it seems like everything's built towards – Hey, in the next two years, we either need to win something or we need to like take a step up as a club. And, and everything seems thrown into that basket. And the focus seems far less on, hey, what are things going to look like five, six, seven years from now? I, I don't know if y'all have noticed that, if y'all feel like that about how I do um, or what y'all think. Or, you know, just tell me your thoughts. Sid, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I don't like it. But I don't. I, I I would say maybe it's an accelerated trend now, but I think this has been an issue for a little while. Um, and I think we've talked about it a few times, sort of saying you're committed to the Cantera when you know. To me, I, I love John Costa and I respect him and all those things. But to me, I thought the sort of logic there was Quintia is just as good and costs half as much and is much younger and mm-hmm. you're going to get a few more years out of him and he might develop into something more than sort of, you know, a serviceable left back option. So, so I've, I've seen it a lot at sort of the margins of these discussions. Um, I was pleased a little bit more, you know, in addition to the performance of the team late in the season with the fact that some of the guys like Morlanes um and and you know Kintia or um you know hoping in the upcoming season somebody like a Miguelon uh though it remains to be seen but it just uh even even a Chakla uh though again he's a little bit older those guys were getting opportunities showing they could perform um and I think that was a significant part given the na- compressed nature of the season uh, of us having success, that there wasn't such a big drop-off. Um, as you say, it's now going to be 30-year-old starter, 30-year-old backup, um, and and definitely that, that has been some of the mentality. The issue, though, before, I think, was we were just sending these players out on loan and sort of not giving them the opportunity uh, to to prove themselves. So it seems like there's a significant, you know, in the vein of all of those guys we had, have had on loan the past couple of years and basically none of them have come back. Um, mm. I feel like we're in for another one of those kinds of situations. If we are bringing in sort of, you know, as our, our backup right back, um, you know, our backup left back here, uh, you know, some, uh, some veteran. So I, I'm, I'm less concerned about somebody like a Siobas, um, or a Senho just because he's a goalie and, and age there's a little bit different. Um, I think Siobas is, or somebody like that is at a position of real need where he's going to be playing, you know, almost with three competitions, you know, he's going to be playing a significant amount, uh, and not a huge amount less than the starters. Uh, but for the guy who's coming in and, you know, I, I suppose Baca is an example. Um, 
you know, I think with Baca there in his role, it's sort of what 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 do you do with a Fernandinho? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense to have him in the squad if you are using Baca in the way that you are. Um, so that that's where sort of at the margins, some of these guys who who potentially could develop and actually be here for a season, it just doesn't make sense for them to um, if you're bringing in veteran depth players. And, yeah. and to your point, and to your point, if we sign Coquelin and Parejo, Marlanis isn't going to play, so he's going to have to either go out on loan somewhere, or he's going to get kind of a wasted year of development. Yeah. yeah, and and I think want if if Samu doesn't leave, I think you know Antiveros is looks to be an odd man out. I think Moy has a little bit more flexibility. But, you know, Antiveros getting 15 minutes every other game doesn't make sense at his age either. Yeah, I I guess my perspective on it is less based on thinking about individual players and so forth. But I really have the sense that we are almost – I it almost feels like a, like a go big or go home strategy because – I think what the club has realized and, and what, to be fair, if you look at the way international football has developed over the last 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, there is a, there's going to be this third competition that starts up that, that, you know, hives off some teams that used to go to the Europa League that now go to this third thing. And the amount of money available there is going to be less and it's going to be a much less prestigious thing. And I think that Villarreal have basically said, you know, I think there are a couple of factors. I think one is the feeling that, you know, we let's hire a coach and give us a team that can maybe win us a trophy, whether it's Europa League or whether it's Copa del Rey. Let's, you know, let's actually stop being the team that gets to the semifinals every few years and that's it. And everybody has a nice feeling for it, but nothing really happens. So I think there's that perspective. And maybe part of that is dealing with is the fact that senior Raj has is getting on in years and is and is I think winning I think winning a trophy before he steps fully back from the team would be would be really important but the other thing is I just think that we've looked at the economics of the thing and and said we really need to do something in the next couple of years I don't I don't know that I'm totally happy with that either um, because I think I really enjoy watching the young players develop um, rather than seeing a bunch of 29, 30-year-olds come in that I don't have an emotional attachment to because I never saw them play for the B team or anything. But I do sense that that's sort of the mentality that we're, that's, that's we're with here is the, is a sense that we've got the next two or three years, and maybe part of it is the fact that going into this whole pandemic thing, we were in much better shape um, than a lot of other clubs in terms of our finances. And so that may give us something of a competitive advantage. Certainly if you look at what's going on with Valencia in the negotiations for um, Coquelin Parejo, that seems to be the case. Um, so maybe we're trying to strike while the iron's hot. I was, I was going to say that, Alan. That's exactly what it sounded like to me from what you were describing, is viewing that, you know, not even necessarily that we're going to rise, but that there are a few prominent teams that are, you know, in particularly dangerous shape. Um, 
And I suppose there's also a question, again, I think we think Atletico is a top three team, you know, somewhat permanently. Of course, they've been the third highest spender uh, for many years before this. And, you know, we're a mid-table team at times. Um, but what happens when Simeone leaves is is certainly a question. And, and you'd have to imagine that's a matter of when at this point and not an if. Um, right. So, you know, it does seem like there's some possibility there, certainly with, yeah. with Valencia being weakened. Um, and, you know, as, as we had the discussions last year, certainly Sevilla's squad has gotten worse over the past few years and not better. Um, so, you know, certainly seems like there's a possibility there. So something worth noting though, I mean, Atletico has secured themselves as that number three team. And like you said, Simeone is a huge part of that. I think they'll drop off so many leaves. But they've also been able to do that as a team in the city of Madrid where they can build a 70,000-seat stadium and fill it up every week. I, I think that realistically, like, the play here is not to become, like, the the third you know the third team in Spain it's it, because we've seen Sevilla I think I saw a stat today they, they've been to like fourteen uh, finals in the last seventeen years and they've won a bunch of those trophies and Valencia won the Copa del Rey a couple of years ago and uh, well I guess season before last and it, these things don't really move the needle in terms of the club's overall international profile. So so you're in Spain in a country where 76% of the people pull for one of two teams anyway. Internationally, the teams that win these smaller trophies, it, it hasn't really made a big difference to their international profile. But really, the best-case scenario is like a smashing grab where you get a trophy and then kind of more or less – hang out in that top five or so teams in Spain range where we kind of were anyway. And I guess that would be cool. Like, it'd be great to have a trophy, but I, I don't see any version of this that results in Villarreal because of where they are in Spain geographically and everything else, even becoming what Atleti is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably, I think, I think probably I would say that where we would, yeah, winning a trophy would be cool. I mean, as if it's just something you can just say, oh yeah, let's win a trophy this year. Um, <laughs> but that would be a great, that would be a great thing to do, certainly. Um, I just think that maybe it's that there's a, there's a huge difference between qualifying for the Champions League in fourth place in qualifying for the Europa League in fifth place. And I think the problem that we've had is that when we did make it as to the Champions League, I mean, years ago, there wasn't as much money in it anyway. The last time we um, qualified was the last year we had that the fourth team had to play a playoff to get in, and we drew friggin' Monaco. And we ended up dropping back to the Europa League. So... Now, I, I really think the conversation is about if you can get into the, to the Champions League, you know, two years out of three, something like that, 
that's that enables you to move your budget in a big way. And if you are able to do that for a while, then you can. Yeah, you're never going to cover up the fact that you're from Virial with a stadium of 25,000 that holds half the town. But you can become more of a of a discussion, I think. Internationally and nationally. So I, I think you made some good points, Zach. What do you think ultimately then sort of maybe the Emery, Kubo, all of this related stuff is about? Do you think like Alan that it's sort of older owner wanting to win a trophy or do you think there's some broader plan? Because it also seems like this is going hand in hand with the expansion in terms of the academies. Um and uh, that seems to be a significant point of, of emphasis and promotion by the club um, in a way that, you know, I think even surprises me sometimes how much space they devote to it. Um, I don't know. I, I, the idea might be to expand the international profile. I'm just very skeptical about it working. Um, the, the only, the only model that I've seen that I think could potentially lead to, um, a sustained higher echelon of club is one that I, I don't think this particular ownership group is interested in, and I don't think the fan base would like very much, and that's if they became one of these consortiums that, you know, okay, so here's the club that's owned by the same people who own Villarreal, except they play in Portugal, and here's the club owned by the people who own Villarreal, except they play in, you know, in Belgium, or they play in USL over in the States, and it becomes like this feeder system into, into Villarreal. Because uh, otherwise, I just, the, the plan might be for us to become a, a version of F1. I just don't see it being logistically possible. Well, yeah, I don't, and I certainly don't see that model being something that we're going to follow. I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the things that, that Villarreal has, always been about and will continue to be about is where they are. Um, so I, I just think that maybe the feeling is try to find a way to sort of overcome what, you know, much as we, we love the place and everything. It's, I mean, that is a limitation. You're right. That, that even if you end up in a, you know, even if over the next 10 years, Villarreal becomes a much more successful club than Valencia and, and, you know, say we win some trophies and we make it to the Champions League. That's not going to create a bunch of people in Valencia becoming Villarreal fans. I mean, that just isn't going to happen. So I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. I just feel like the team, when I, when I look at what's, what's happening, I feel like, um, Senor Raj Negarodas in particular, Probably look at this, where the club is and what and how the international football landscape is developing. And as essentially said, we're kind of between two chairs right now and we want to get into this chair. You know, we want to be one of these teams that is going to be in the discussion for, you know, for qualifying for Champions League, for for expanding our budget, for being able to sign the kind of players we want to be able to sign because ultimately if you're going to compete at at the at 
at a, a level where you can win some trophies and and get talked about and and expand the brand that's what you have to do because otherwise you're going to end up getting shunted off into the the whatever the other competition is they're going to call the UEFA thing you know which nobody's going to pay any attention to and i i just think that is probably a, a driver here that is the feeling that we need to be in this first subset of teams that people talk about in Spain, not the second subset, because there really isn't a second subset. Well, the, the other thing that I think is worth considering is that I, I, I'm one of the people that thinks that all things in European football are, are eventually trending towards a European Super League. So if slash when that drops and becomes a thing, then the hierarchy in the domestic league suddenly completely changes. So if, if Atleti, if Atleti, Barca and Madrid all take off to that Super League, then you've got an extreme power vacuum, and are we in a position to be one of the teams to take advantage? Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I do think that's where it's heading, and I think the I, I think that's so. It may be a longer term play that we're looking at, but than just the short term. In the short term, winning winning tro- couple winning a trophy and and uh, qualifying for Champions League over the next couple of years. I mean, I think that's clearly why we hired Emery because if otherwise the hire doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but ultimately, yeah, maybe I, I really think we have to. We're trying to figure out a, a way to expand our brand and expand what we do, expand the success of the team. Um, I mean, who knows? Ten, fifteen years from now, what the international landscape will look like. But I think we want to be much more a part of it. What, Zach, one one question just in terms of models and things. And again, it's it's hard to compare because there are so few comparisons in terms of catchment size and leagues that are sort of as as um, uneven in terms of you know attention and distribution, uh, media and otherwise as Spain. But you know, I've always sort of thought. That you know, that does it make sense to try and pursue the Porto model? Is that something that is sort of the longer-term, sustainable approach from the club? And you know, you can mix it in a little bit more, I suppose, having some local players built in. But does the model, you know, and I think Sevilla has has pursued it, maybe not to the same extremes. Um, but for some amount of time, it, is the model just going to be sort of continuing to try and, you know, scoop up these, say, 10 to 15 million players and try and sell them on for 30 or 40 uh, and, and use that as the mechanism to, to continue to fund yourself, sort of knowing that there's a there's a peak as to where you can get performance wise before you have to disassemble it again. So, the teams that are, as the landscape in Europe has evolved over the last, I'd say really five years, the teams that have been able to do that are the teams that have gone uh, 
full-fledged into the analytics movement in football where they are, you know, they're looking at the predictive stats of a fullback that plays in Belgium and they're digging him up and they're, and all of a sudden, holy cow, this guy can play. And, and, and to do that, the clubs have been most successful doing that so far in the last three to four years have been the teams that have um, dedicated analytics departments that are, are working hand-in-hand with their traditional scouts and, and really, truly digging up these diamonds in the rough uh, to the point where their fan bases don't even ask questions when they sign somebody anymore because they know that in three years he's going to be worth five times as much because they saw something on a chart somewhere. Uh, Brentford, that just barely missed promotion to the Premier League, uh, has been doing that for years. Um, and, and so, to my knowledge, Villarreal doesn't have that infrastructure. And so, if the plan is to be kind of like that Sevilla model, dig up diamonds in the rough, uh, to me, if, if we don't have that dedicated department of looking at football in this new modern way, I don't think we're going to be able to keep up with the German teams and the English teams that, that have been so good at this sort of thing in the last few years um, and, and are really turning the big profits. I think what you're going to end up with is a lot of instances where, you know, stuff, you know, kind of the, and as you know, all thing where, it, it, you know, it took the gamble but he does, because he looked flashy on film and it never really pays off the way we thought it would. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think, and historically, we haven't had that reliance on analytics, and we have, and we don't have a very deep front office right now. I mean, this is part of what one of the things that seems to be happening is that Emory, I think, has more um, more input into signing decisions than most of our other coaches have had. And whether or not that's going to be a long-term thing or whether or not we're going to restructure that office, you know, we, we don't really have a director of football at this point. So I don't – yeah, I have a hard time thinking we're going to start becoming the next analytical champion in Spain. I mean, not to say you couldn't because I don't think Spanish teams generally have used analytics that much. Yeah, you, your your question sort of, or what Zach was saying was the you know Granada model um, had led me to okay, well this is another way that we've seen before. Um, again, like you said, Alan, it, it seems like the club is realizing they're a little bit in no man's land um, and trying to figure out which direction to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so where, where does the, you know, because I, I don't think Emery is going to be around to see the end of whatever this proposed transformation is. I think there, there's a, there's a plan after he leaves as well for sort of how this is reshaping the club. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it definitely feels like we, if I, if I, I guess, I, from a historical perspective, um, you know, the, you, you kind of divide the Real almost into sort of 10 year chunks. And I think the, certainly 
the 2000s, we got we almost got too successful too fast in a way. But we had a model there that worked for about 10 years until everybody started scouting South America and and uh, and we couldn't build on it the way that we could before. But we had a very successful period there. The the 2010 to 2020 period has sort of been this sort of, well, we had to get back from from relegation first. But then it's sort of, if you look at what we did, we, we got, Marcelino got us pretty much to Champions League edge of, um, then left. Um, but we've basically been unable to go get over this hump. It seems as though in spite of we, we, we talk about Escriba, talk about um, Calleja, talk about whomever, it hasn't really seemed to matter that much in terms of where the club has finished at the end of the year. <laughs> we've been 60 points plus or minus three or four most years, and we've been in Europa League most years. Um, and I think there's a realization that we've got to do, you know, we've got to try to do better than that. Now, maybe we won't, but we can't be, we can't just be sitting on that and say, we're not, that's, that's good enough. I think is how, is how I'm looking at it. And I know when we talked to, to, um, Raul, he made the point that in Villarreal, this is a discussion that happens all the time too, where the, the younger generation is wanting to see some action, you know. I mean, the older generation is, you know, delighted to have premier, premier football, but the, that's been, we can't hang our hat on that, um, forever because we've been doing that for 20 years. We want something else to brag about. I guess that's that's how I look at it. Well, and I mean, realistically, realistically, I think if we could, if Villarreal can get to the point where, you know, it's not it's not alarming that once a decade we win the Europa League or that you know we're we're in a Copa del Rey final two or three times in the decade like that would be a, a sustained level of success mm-hmm. that that really outside of the top two nobody's had long term in La Liga you know since since nineteen ninety. Um, and so if, if we could get to that point, that would be great. Um, but I mean, kind of like you alluded to earlier, Alan, um, we do kind of have this moment here where we can at least sustain ourselves while other clubs are faltering, but Maritime's not going to own Valencia forever. Um, Lopetegui looks like he's doing really cool things at Sevilla, um, there's, you know, it, it's not, it's not a moment, unless we get to the point where we've got, you know, a squad much younger than the one we're going to have this year with similar levels of talent, it's not going to be something that's truly sustainable, mm-hmm. uh, going forward. Yeah, uh, it's, I just, I just feel like we're sort of at an inflection point here where the philosophy is definitely changing. 
the mentality of what we're aiming for, I think, is definitely changing. And the level of risk that we're able, that we're willing to accept to try for that is also changing. I mean, I just think um, coming back to Paco and, and Kubo, I think those are deals that, Sid, do you think those got made 10 years ago? I don't. Yeah, I'm not even sure 10, maybe three they don't. So, um, you know, again, Gerard was was the biggest <laughs> sort of splash that we felt like we could make, and that was literally the guy had been with us for, you know, mm-hmm. six, eight years before before we did. Um, yeah, the, the only thing when you say this, Alan, that I think the older – set of fans is going to say, well, we remember kind of the last time we really went big and we went so big to the point that we went broke uh, very immediately. Um, So, you know, I think there's always the concern, are we going to come out of this pandemic when, when that does happen two years from now and just say, boy, we have no ability whatsoever to sustain this budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to sort of gut the core of the team, and we've all seen that story before, kind of thing. Um, yeah. But, but you know, with with all of these things, I don't know that there was a better time or opportunity to do this. Um, again, I don't know that there was really a, a Spanish manager that you would pick to sort of come and do this. Um, other than that. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of couldn't have happened at a better time in terms of leadership within the club in that the two most respected players are gone. Um, so all, all all signs pointed to them doing it, and, and I suppose this time they went ahead and pulled the trigger. Yeah, I just I, – I think that's – I think that's right. And I'm not – you know, I, I mean, I'm not – Totally opposed to it either, and of course, and of course, we're all sitting here thousands of miles away, trying to you know figure out what what actually we think the the philosophy is, and it may be totally different, and we may all be you know barking up the wrong tree. I don't know. I just, but I do think as, that it's clear that we're making deals and we're willing to position ourselves in ways that we weren't willing to do three years ago, and you know, even signing Emery is something that. You know, I've, I mean, I've always liked him and whenever we talked about him before, it's like, well, he wouldn't come to be a real. Well, now he did, you know. So I think let's, let's see where we go. I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on that previous time when we bust the, bust the budget. Although I would say that there was no financial fair play then. So I think our ability to bust the budget would be less now because there's a, and La Liga has a salary cap, which it didn't have then. So, you know, I think there's a little more protection. But certainly um, Unai Emery is putting a lot of pressure on himself by <laughs> going out and making all these deals because people are getting really excited about the team that's being assembled here. So if we don't do well out of the gate, you know, people are well, – let's see how much time um, it takes. But – People are, I think, expectations have definitely been raised. For sure. I, I think one thing that, that, and I guess for anyone who has stuck with this particular podcast this long, just kind of a reminder to us all, 
Um, when expectations get raised, it's very easy for things to get toxic really quickly when they don't, you know, if, if those expectations aren't met right away. And, and one of the beautiful things about Villarreal as a club is that the, the, the entire fan base really does have kind of a little bit of a family feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, and now just like your real family, you like certain members of that family better than others. But, uh, but it's one of those things that, and I've seen it with, with other clubs with similar ambitions. You know, when, when the expectations get raised and all of a sudden it's October and instead of being in fifth, you're in eighth or ninth, then, you know, everybody's terrible and the manager has to go and I can't believe this Players just complete garbage, doesn't have it anymore. I mean, shoot, that's that we've seen that in our comment sections from a Valencia fan where he's turned on every single guy in his roster in the last month and a half because he's frustrated about how last season went. So it's one of those things that I don't mind the the higher expectations, the higher ambition, but I, I would hate for that to come at the expense of what makes the club special. And that's the fact that it really is, it's a, it's a family that succeeded in a good, honest way, not necessarily someone that is ready to go, you know, storm Europe by being ruthless business people. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because if we, if you start getting your expectations too high, you start becoming too much like fans of the big teams that are just like, you know, why can't we win every game? And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I always just laugh and sometimes we, we play and we don't win. And the best explanation is there was another team playing, you know, <laughs> and I, I think sometimes we just, um, when your expectations get raised so much, you kind of want the other team to be like the, uh, what was that team that the Harlem Globetrotters always played that, you know, were basically there for, for the, um, sidekicks. And the that's Washington Generals. Okay. And that's not the way this works, right? So yeah, I hope we don't lose. And I, you know, I wouldn't expect that we would, but I, I certainly don't want to lose all that feeling that makes, um, Villarreal special. I just think that, I remember back to 2010-2011 when we got to the Europa League semifinal and how many people around the world were rooting for us to get to the final and and to win it because, you know, that would have been perfect for Senior Raj. That would have been, you know, Santi was, um, I was going to say at the height of his powers, though it might have been last year too. But, you know, everybody was really fond of, of that Virial team and, you know, I'd like to think that we could have that sort of team again where people are, are enjoying the ride and, and, you know, we're not all trying to tear ourselves up because we're not in first or second place or we're not winning every game. So if we wanted to but, do that, but I'm not. other two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think some of that will happen though. And I think that's the thing where the narrative is you finished in fifth place and you fired your coach. And then you brought in, you know, one of Real Madrid's top two hotshot prospects. And then you may potentially sign the captain of your arch rival. Like what, what does that story build up to other than you really are expecting that you can finish in the top four mm-hmm. and compete in all the competitions you're in? So, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, I think one of the things we've talked about though is saying, you know, 
players don't feel pressure. They enjoy the environment that it's not, you know, there's a tabloid looking and seeing where you go out every day. Um, but with some of that lack of expectation, I think has also, and I don't want to use this word in any context, but it has normalized sort of not being able to get over the hump. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, that club, they're, they're a little bit more relaxed and they don't have those pressures and, you know, hey, lots of players recommend to other players that they should come here because it's such a family atmosphere. Well, part of the family atmosphere is you don't, <laughs> you don't, yeah. you don't cut off your uncle if you, if you don't win. Um, but some of that ruthlessness is, is what gets you over the hump. So yeah. It, yeah. it's, it's going to be a hard balance. And I do think some of the decision was made. We do want to have a little bit more of a cutting edge. And I think we've talked over the years saying, you know, it's nice to be the fair play champion, but I kind of like it when, you know, Martina goes and tries to take out somebody's leg uh, from time to time. You know, you need, you need a little bit of that bite. You need a little bit of that desire. Um, yeah. And again, we talked so much about Emery being hungry because I think he feels like he's been ridiculed. Um, and, you know, being the master motivator that he seems to be, I think he's going to use that and say, all of you guys, and this is the case for many of these players, you know, Ebora went to Leicester and was a spare part. Um, you know, I'll be all, everybody thought he left Spain and he was completely washed up. So, mm-hmm. so you know, there there are guys with something to prove there. Um, and at some point, you know, being able to actually draw that little bit extra out of them uh, can be what gets you over the top. Right. And I think, you know, thinking back again, I seem to be the historian this evening, don't I? But I'm thinking back to when um, Marcelino came in, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways, if he had stayed around, I mean, Marcelino's personality and everything was difficult to put up with for a long period of time. But there's no question that when he came in, um, you had players who under Garrido were, you know, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily pushed. Well, Marcelino pushed them and he certainly controlled, uh, micromanaged a lot of their, a lot of their waking time. Uh, with with his diet restrictions and everything else, and that's the best Villarreal team we ever had. You know, it was under Marcelino at least in in recent years. So I think if you, yeah, maybe the Emery hiring is essentially trying to say, okay, let's 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 go for that kind of thing and try to make let's make people a little less comfortable because. Tell, you know, having players say to other players, yeah, come to Villarreal, it's a nice place to sort of, you know, there won't be any pressure on you. That's not, there's a flip side to that that's not positive. And so I think having, having to feel like there are, there are aims to, to go for is probably a good thing. Um, you know, where that leaves us in the long term, I don't know, but I think in the short term, I think we're all excited about the signings about about the coach and everything. It's just going to be, can we control our excitement when everything doesn't go from the, from the very beginning like we thought it would? Yeah, 
I think a good example of that, right, is the Dos Santos brothers played together at Villarreal. So mm-hmm. I think the uh, the image we may have is uh, of being a little bit more forgiving about uh, top level performance, perhaps from players. Right, right. Well, we got one good year out of Geo. <laughs> I think that's the last good year anybody's had out of him for a while, right? So, but it, but it was only one. And yeah, I agree. Um, we look at we look at some of the some um, players like that over the years, and yeah, I think maybe Emery is going to be quite a bit tougher on some some players than than what we've seen before. Zach, any last thoughts? I, as much as I I feel like I've sounded way more cautious and wary tonight than I probably actually feel like I'm. I'm really excited about this season. I think Emery's a great coach. I think I like how, especially if we can find a center back, I like how the pieces are fitting together. I think we got a chance at the Champions League. Um, I'm really excited about the direction Villarreal is heading, and I can't wait to see how the season plays out. That's, that sounds like a good good way to end this podcast because I think we're all I think we're all sort of um, on the one hand we're it almost feels like you're seeing a you're seeing this vista out there which you haven't seen before and you're excited to go for it but on the other hand taking the first step or two is a bit difficult and I I think that's ca- kind of how I look at it it's it is exciting we we somebody posted on Twitter today like our potential starting 11 and then somebody posted Valencia's and I was like are you kidding me I mean we we look a lot better um <laughs> but you know it's it, it is exciting um We'll just see how it works out. And again, the fact that this season is going to start without fans, the fact, you know, who knows? There are all sorts of twists and turns that are, that could be ahead of us, but I think we feel, we feel good about, um, about where we are at this point. So there's, there's, there's one team in the league that's still 10 days away from knowing who their first opponent is. Please remember that. Right. Yeah, so there, there's a team that's going to play a team that still has four games remaining in its season, uh, and that you know that match is supposed to happen in what three, four weeks time, so, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that, that team will literally not have a a break whatsoever. So yeah, yeah, that that that's a very good point. Well, I hope it's Elchick. So I'd, I'd love to see them get back. Okay. So for Zach, for Sid, this is Alan. Keep the faith, everybody. Get excited. End of Virial. <laughs>